0: Good morning, familia. I am so glad to be with you this morning. I want to welcome you uh, to our time in God's Word. I want to welcome you who are joining online as well. We are so glad you're here. My name is Brent Sickle. I'm one of the uh, pastors here at Wheaton Bible Church. And I want to wish all the fathers again a happy Father's Day. Today, uh, as you just heard Carlos read, I'm gonna be walking through this section in Matthew and continuing our series on the King's people. This week we're looking at Matthew chapter five, verses seventeen through forty-eight. If you've been following along in your notebooks, you realize you have two full pages to take notes today. I'm gonna to help you fill that. Uh, and doesn't that mean I get like 60 minutes up here or uh, Or am I going to make you late for Father's Day brunch? I'm not sure. But today in this passage that we just read, Matthew 5, verses 17 through 48, this passage explains, uh, sorry, in this passage, Jesus explains how his people must have a new way of thinking. And so I want us to read very quickly again. uh, The book ends to this passage that give the framework for this new way of thinking. Let's start in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest leather nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever preaches and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Did you hear what Jesus just said right here? You must surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. These men, these men were meticulous about obeying the law here, and Jesus is saying that our righteousness needs to exceed theirs. Even more than that, he says, every little part of the law must be lived out in a way if you wish to belong to the kingdom of heaven. Are, are we hearing Jesus right in this? I mean, we just finished the Beatitudes last week. Is, is this G, what Jesus really means? As I was preparing for this passage, I was reminded of, of a great painting Michelangelo's painting on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And I read a story about it, about uh, in 19, during the 1980s and 90s, uh, they brought in some artisans and their role was to clean the ceiling. And in 1990, a decade after they started the work, the Sistine Chapel was finally free of the latticework and scaffolding of these artisans. And now visitors could return and neck cringely look up at the ceiling And see this painting in its full glory. The colors were bold and bright. But for everyone who had seen the painting before, their eyes were fixated because it was different than the old dusty vault they remembered. It was so startling, in fact, that many complained that when they were finished cleaning, the colors were too strong. Yet the historical artisan that was in charge of this told the people and said, no, these are the original colors. This was meant how they are meant to be. This painting was just now purged of the residue of candle smoke, incense, and dust that had accumulated over the years. This team of artisans spent more than 10 years cleaning what Michelangelo took four years to paint. Similarly, we see here in Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus isn't proclaiming something new. Jesus is not adding to or raising the standard of the law of what is right. Instead, he is restoring to the full glory what God has always required of the law, righteousness. Jesus, at the end of this section, summarizes it with this statement in verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Don't you find that shocking? Jesus summarizes all the teaching thus far with the words, be perfect, Come on, Jesus, you just announced the kingdom of God has come. This is supposed to be good news for the poor and the meek. It's supposed to be a blessing for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You built all of this up and now you've pulled the rug out from under us by saying we've got to be perfect. How is this good news? Maybe if you are a scholar in the room and you've studied some of the Greek, you might think that there's a little bit of hope because you're sitting there saying, whoa, 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 I know it says perfect, but a better translation would probably be complete or mature. Maybe that's what Jesus meant. I can't achieve perfection, but maybe I have a shot at being complete or mature in whatever that means. That is until we read the rest of that verse. We're to be perfect, complete, or mature. Therefore, as our Heavenly Father is perfect, complete, or mature. And I think that shows us that's perfection whichever way we choose to look at it. And mimics for us what we have already heard over and over again in the Old Testament, specifically in Leviticus 11 be holy because I am holy. So, Jesus is challenging us be perfect in righteousness as God is perfect in righteousness. So, the question for us this morning remains is Jesus telling us to do something that's impossible? And what exactly is this perfect righteousness that Jesus is talking about? I want to address these two questions today. As I said, as the king's people, we are now looking at things in a new way. And so we're going to address these two questions with a worldview shift, a shift in the way that we will think about God's word, a shift in the way that we'll think about his law and about the perfect righteousness that he's called us to live out as the king's people. So to help you move along in this, I have three points. The demand of righteousness, the dynamics of righteousness, and the discipline of righteousness. Demand, dynamics, discipline. Let's delve into the first one, the demand of righteousness. And I'm going to move us along quickly because this portion covers a lot of our passage, but it's setting a tone for us. Jesus here sets the bar of righteousness and illustrates this with six patterned statements. These statements begin with, you have heard it said, and continue on with, but I tell you. He's quoting statements that represent what the Pharisees have viewed as the way you carry out righteousness, and then he speaks of the perfect righteousness that is demanded by him and the law. And in so doing so, he's constantly drawing this comparison between the external exhibited actions and the internal heart. Jesus is focused on the internal versus the external. He's focused on our attitudes more than our actions. So let's move quickly through this. The first one we see is in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So we see very quickly if murder is the effect Then anger is the cause. Already in this first example, we see where Jesus is going. He is more focused on us having righteous roots than producing righteous fruit. Example two, we see in verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, if adultery is the effect, lust is the cause. Let's look at the third illustration, verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her a victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a woman commits adultery. Again, if divorce is the effect, unfaithfulness is the cause. Jesus is continuing to delve into the cause of what is going on in our lives. The fourth one, dishonesty. Verse 33. Again, you have heard that it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear by an oath at all. Verse 37, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So you see, adultery, divorce, oaths are all rooted in the integrity of our hearts. If that wasn't enough, Jesus adds two more illustrations that focus on our relationship with others. Verse 38 he delves into it with this way. You have heard that it is said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand him your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Again, if revenge or retaliation is the effect, this retaliative heart is the cause. Jesus is reminding us that in personal dealings with others, where they may take advantage of us or obligate us to do something, our righteousness is not related to any external requirements, but into the internal attitude of our hearts. Jesus ends his illustrations this way in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. If hatred is the effect, the unloving heart is the cause. Charles Price says this, the love of God is undiscriminating And that love that expresses the righteousness required by Jesus is equally undiscriminating. It is in the context of these six illustrations that Jesus says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The criteria for our love in both attitude and action has no disclaimer of circumstance or condition. It is determined by the exhibited righteous character of who God is. Jesus' righteous demand here in Matthew chapter 5 is that the true righteous character of God would be seen in us from the inside out. If that's the demand of righteousness, what's the dynamics? How does this play out in our lives? How do we understand it? Is this perfect righteousness even possible? And what does it mean that Jesus fulfilled the law? For us to understand Jesus' statement here of what it means for Jesus to fulfill the law, we need to understand both the purpose of the law and the effect of the law. First, the purpose: Why did God give us these commands of the law? To answer this question, I want us to look at two verses. You have to turn in your Bible to this, but First John chapter three verse four, says this as it defines sin. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. John, in this passage, is defining sin as breaking the law. We know that the word sin literally means to miss the mark. But how far one misses is irrelevant to what sin is. To miss is a miss, whether it's a meter or a mile. You see, John's helping us understand that sin is not a measurement of how bad a person is. It is a measurement of how good a person is not. Anyone ever miss their flight uh, when they're attending a business trip? A couple hands, yep. There have been times we've missed our flights attending a business trip. And, and when you miss your flight, it doesn't matter if you've missed your flight by one minute or an hour. Right? you missed the flight and you're not getting where you're going. And now you've got to go to the counter and try to rebook it someplace else. That's the same thing. A miss is a miss relative to the mark that has been set. And John's saying here in 1 John chapter three that the mark that we miss is the law. Paul approaches it this way in Romans chapter three twenty three. We know this verse right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The standard against which we are measured that Paul is telling us is the glory of God. And so when we take these two passages and we put them together and compare them, John says the target we miss is the law of God. Paul says the target we miss is the glory of God. There must be some correlation between these two. I want us to see that the law of God and the glory of God represent the same thing. And so we must discover what the glory of God is in order to understand the law of God. The glory of God is, is clearly revealed in Scripture many times and is the manifestation of the character of God. John chapter 1, verse 14 says this, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace. And truth. John says we see the glory in who Jesus is. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says this. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus is the exact representation of God. And finally, in John 2.11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed him. If we want to see what God is like, all we need to do is look at Jesus. Jesus' life, his ministry, his behavior, his actions, and his reactions Portray the moral character of God. And in the same way, the law of God represents the character of God to all humanity. When God said to his people, You shall not steal, it was for one reason God is not a thief. To break the law would be to misrepresent God and distort the character of the one in whose image we are designed to function. When God said, You shall not give false testimony, it's because God does not lie. When He said, You shall not commit adultery, it's because God is totally faithful. When God said, You shall not covet, it's because God is not greedy. When he said you shall not murder, it's because God gives dignity to every human being. When he said six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath for the Lord, he explains it that God rested on the seventh day. He didn't rest because he was tired, but because his work was finished. The Sabbath is not designed to enable us to get over six days of hard work but that we might rest in the full sufficiency of who God is. And when the law states honor your father and mother, it's because within the Trinity, the Son always seeks to please his Father. You see that with me this morning? The law is not designed as an arbitrary set of rules or a series of guidelines to help us behave better. The law is so much more profound than that. It's a revelation of the character of God. If the purpose of the law is to reveal the character of God, then we need to understand the effect of the law, for the effect of the law reveals the failure of us. Paul makes this very clear throughout his book, his, his uh, letter to the Romans, Romans seven verse seven. He says this: What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would have not, uh, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, "You shall not covet." In Romans 3, verse 20, it says this, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, become conscious of our sin. The law doesn't make us sinners. It only reveals our deep sinfulness. It reveals our sinful actions, yes, but even deeper, our sinful thoughts and attitudes as well. The effect of understanding the law in our own lives gives us the ability to make conscious our own inability and failure. So, what was Jesus doing in speaking this way to the people? I want us to see this morning that he was driving his listeners and driving us into a corner where we can only come to one conclusion. To live righteously in this life on our own is impossible. And until we arrive at this conclusion, we cannot be the person God's designed us to be because we will never understand the full force of the gospel. God came to do more than forgive us of our past sins. He came to deal with the root cause, which is a sinful heart. You see, if Jesus only speaks of a gospel which only deals with the outward actions but never the cause, this gospel is no different than the Old Testament law that the Pharisees have known. The difference we see here is that the cross of Christ was permanent in its effect. Rather than having to carry on the continued repetition of sacrifices of the old covenant, Christ's death and resurrection on the cross now gives us freedom. But understanding the effect of the law still only addresses the symptoms. This leads us to the most crucial point of our passage here in Matthew chapter 5. It's Jesus' initial statement. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill the law. You see, previously to this point, there's been a missing element in the revelation God has given Paul says it was a mystery. It's a mystery that, was, uh, that is now fully revealed. Colossians chapter 1, verse 25 says it this way. I have become its servant by the commission of God gave me to present you to the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Amen? Amen. The mystery, Paul says, which is now revealed in Christ Jesus is not only something he's done for us in which he fulfills the ritual of the old covenant sacrifice, but it's something he does in us. Living his life in us, he is our hope of glory. He is our hope of hitting the target that we have come so short of hitting. Jesus does not fulfill the law as an example for us to follow, but he fills it within us by giving us a transformed heart. Jeremiah 31, 33 prophesied, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it in their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Jesus in his new covenant is not involved in rewriting the law, but relocating the law. Instead of it being on tablets of stone, it is written now in our minds and in our hearts that it might be internalized as Christ lives that out. The prophet Ezekiel prophesied about this as well in Ezekiel 36, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You see, under the new covenant that Jesus is talking about, our righteousness does not depend on what we do for God, but it depends on what Christ has done for us. And by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to live the life that Jesus is within us and produce the character of God in us. The gospel that Jesus is proclaiming involves at the bottom line the restoration of God's character reflected in us as his image bearers, which was lost at the Garden of Eden. The consequence of the fall then was death or separation from God. The cause of the restoration of righteousness is life. He who has a son has life. It is the life of God dwelling in human life, lived in union together, that is the source that gives us the ability to live in true righteousness. The Bible makes no claim, though, that we will be perfect in this life. Rather, there's a process of growth in righteousness, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3. We who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory and are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, Who is the Spirit? So, just as we understand what Jesus is asking us this demand of righteousness, we're understanding how it works out. We need to realize that we are not passive observers when it comes to the righteousness of God. We don't just sit around and, okay, I know what the righteousness is, I know what God's done for me, and it just automatically produces. We are full participants in our growth in righteousness, and Jesus addresses that here in our passage as well. So we've seen the demand of righteousness, we've looked at the dynamics of righteousness and and its effect and its fulfillment, and now we're going to look at the final portion, the discipline of righteousness. And Jesus is dealing with their understanding of our discipline of righteousness, specifically in our relationship with others and our relationship with ourselves. Look with me back here at verse 23. Jesus takes some time to expound on this example. and He says this, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and, after you, and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown in the prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid every last penny. The first discipline of righteousness that we see as we evidently live this out in our lives is that Jesus is calling us to reconciliation. We are to actively pursue the restoration of broken relationships in our lives. Whether it's personal relationships, whether it's financial relationships, whatever it is, the discipline of reconciliation is a vital ingredient in the process of growth and righteousness in our lives. Pastor Duran Gray says this, Scripture testifies that Jesus was sent on a mission to reconcile people to God the Father and to one another. We treasure Jesus by treasuring one another. Jesus is reminded here it's more than being kind. But do we treasure one another enough that we want to be in restored right relationship with them just as we are with our Father in heaven? The second discipline of righteousness has to deal with ourselves, and we see this in verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go in hell. Jesus is not speaking of literal mutilation here, but is referring to restraint and self-discipline of the body that helps us deny the opportunity of sin. The discipline of ourselves and our body is an essential component of true righteousness, the function of which is not to create something within us, But to truly release the life of Jesus that is in us to be seen by others. Paul instructs the Philippians with this in Philippians 2. He says this, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. You see, our responsibility in disciplining ourselves is not to work it out in our own self-righteousness, but to work out the consequence of what Christ has done on the cross through us that others might see. I've learned discipline a lot in my life through many of the sports that I've played. And if you've gotten to know me, even for a little bit, you know that I am an avid cyclist. I love watching cycling and I've been enamored with it since I was a boy, watching the Tour de France, uh, getting up really early, like at 4 a.m. in the morning to watch the Spring Classics and watching any race that I could. I had a a bike growing up that I rode until literally the gears and and, uh, cables fell off of it. And so uh, about a half dozen years ago when I bought my first road bike, I started cycling. And I go out the cycle and I go out and cycle for an hour and I come back totally thrilled yet totally exhausted and barely have gone 15 miles. I remember pulling into my driveway, panting for water because somehow I chose to do this ride in the middle of a summer day. My legs ached and I was ready for a nap. And I'd walk in the door and all my wife would do was laugh. man, I got all this excitement to to ride this bike and yet I had not been disciplined before that and so it showed up. But now I've been riding for many years and I put in miles after miles and I get annoyed now if I have to try to get dressed for anything under 25 miles because at 25 miles my legs are just feeling warmed up to keep going. And people think I might be crazy when they hear about the century rides that I've ridden of over 100 miles, or gravel races up mountains, or multi-day bikepacking trips I've done. And they're like, "How could you ever go that far?" And I tell them it takes continued discipline on the bike. I also say it's not mostly in the legs; it's mostly how long you can sit on the seat. But it took discipline. It took me riding my bike in good weather or bad weather. It took me riding my bike when it's hot or cold. And even so much so, I had to ride it all year round that I bought a trainer that my bike mounts on in the basement and I ride in my basement to nowhere. And so it is with our spiritual growth and righteousness. God's work of sanctifying us is a continual and ongoing process. It allows us to produce the ever-growing fruit of God's righteousness internally within us that then is exhibited externally to the world. I'm going to tell you, you will never meet a lazy, undisciplined, but effective Christian. The two are contradictory. Discipline is not the cause of righteousness, but the means by which it's expressed. The role of Christ in the Christian involves his fulfilling the righteous demands that the law makes upon us. Jesus and his work on the cross is indispensable to our, our righteousness. But what he has already done in us as believers is expressed through our disciplined humble dependence and obedience to him each day. If we remove any ingredient from this process, we're left with the legalism that the Pharisees lived in. So Jesus' challenge here to us in Matthew chapter 5 is not to exert self-righteousness, but to live out his perfect righteousness which he has given to us through a transformed heart and the power of the Holy Spirit living in us each day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And in this tough passage, I can just imagine again the reaction of the crowd, of the Pharisees, the scribes, of the words that you say, the demand that you give, but Lord, it all points us back to the hope we have only in you. Lord, we thank you that you're the one that fulfills the demand of righteousness upon our lives. And the spirit that you've given us empowers us to live that out each day. Lord, help us to be disciplined in humble response and obedience to your word. Allow us to live that out this week as we go. We ask these things in your name. Amen.